Luke chapter number 4. I want you to hold your place here. Find Matthew 4. We'll read it at the end of reading our text for today. If you have a reference Bible, it's probably going to reference you at the last verse that we're reading today in our text. It's probably going to reference you to those verses. So we'll read those verses out of Matthew 4 after we read our text in Luke chapter number 4. Luke 4, beginning in verse 16, as you find your place there, if you can and will, would you join us by standing? We'll honor the Word of God by standing for the reading of today's text. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 31. I'm interested in Christ's rejection by the Nazarenes. He was rejected by his own people, the Jew, but he was further rejected by the people of his own town in which he grew up. Luke 4, verses 16 through 31. The Bible says, And he, that is Christ, and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. That's spelled Isaiah, but that's Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled, in your ears, and all bear him witness, and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, and they said, It's not this Joseph's son. And he said unto them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias. Of course, that's Elijah he's talking about here. When the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. Verse 27 speaks of Elisha and a healing in his day. Verse 27 says... And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elias, or Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him into the brow of the hill whereon their city was built. Holly, did y'all go to this particular cliff on the outside of Nazareth when you and Celebeth were in the Holy Land? Yeah. It's, it's a very, very steep uh, mountainside where they brought him. And he, and verse 29, And rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him into the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he passing through the midst of them went his way. Now here's where he's turning from Nazareth. And he's going to begin and take up his residence in Capernaum. Verse 31 says, And came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. Look, if you will, uh, if you turned over to Matthew 4, verses 13 to 17. We'll just read these verses. It follows right on um, 
the heels of Luke 4, um, 31 that we just read. Verse 13 of Matthew 4, And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zabulon and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zabulon and the land of Naphtali, uh, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region in shadow of death, that light is sprung up. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Thank you for standing. Christ rejected of the Nazarenes. After this rejection, of course, again, he will take up his residence and his home base for the rest of his ministry will be from the city of Capernaum. I want to speak under three headings. If the Lord bear helper, and we'll uh, take these headings from our text here in Luke. There's Christ in the synagogue at Nazareth in verses 16 through 21. There's Christ in the rejection of the people of Nazareth, verse 22 through 30. Then lastly and briefly, verse number 31, Christ leaves um, Nazareth and makes his residence in Capernaum. This is our 25th message from the life of Christ. We're trying to follow his life chronologically through the Gospels. And uh, it's not necessarily an easy task each time, uh, but, uh, but I am enjoying in my personal walk with the Lord taking a, another look at his life through the Gospels. Personally, I think it's helping my walk with the Lord. You remember when he stepped forth from the temptation scene in the wilderness, um, he steps into his greater Galilean ministry. We tried to point that out after he leaves those 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness being tempted of the devil. This is our eighth message since that scene. He's been engaged in ministry for a short while now. And um, there are many more movements to come, but this is the eighth scene since he left that desert or wilderness scene. You remember from John 1, there were two messages regarding Christ's five, his first five. John chapter number 2, there was his first miracle, the miracle of turning the water into wine at the wedding of Cain of Galilee. Also in John 2, there was the cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem by Christ. In John 3, there was an encounter. Remember we said that about John's gospel. Over and again, you find personal interviews, personal encounters with Christ where individuals are speaking to him one-on-one. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. We don't believe he was saved that night. We believe he was saved sometime after that. In John chapter number 4, we looked at when he went to Jacob's well and waited on the Samaritan lady to come at, um, in the middle of the day. And uh, he is seeking a Samaritan sinner. But not only is she saved, there will be a number of Samaritans that were saved in John chapter number 4. Our last message, we looked again at John chapter number 4, the closing verses, at the healing of the nobleman's son. And so now that brings us to the rejecting of Christ by the Nazarenes. And uh, they, they reject him. As a matter of fact, they reject him twice in the Gospels. You remember we were talking about Christ cleansing the temple. He didn't just do that one time. He does it two times. He does it at the beginning of his ministry, and he does it at the ending, the, the closing of his ministry. So it is with the rejection. Those people in Nazareth, he comes to them, he'll come to them a second time. Eighteen months, we believe, after this incident, and they'll reject him all over 
again. You remember after he healed the nobleman's son, or as he healed the nobleman's son, uh, you will remember that's our last message, the last scene in the life of Christ. He did that from Cana. He healed the nobleman's son who was over 20 miles away, and we, we said that that was a miracle uh, in spite of distance. He doesn't have to be physically on the scene. Uh, he can speak and cause things to happen halfway around the world, and we tried to illustrate uh, that, but that was a miracle over uh, distance. And so when he leaves Cana, he walks just a few miles. Cana and Nazareth are located just a few miles from each other, and so he leaves Cana and he walks to Nazareth. As he walks to Nazareth, of course, verse number 16 says that he went into the Sabbath, the Bible says, as his custom was. It was his custom. It was his habit. It was his practice. It was his life. Uh, he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath. That's just what he did. That's what anyone did who wanted to worship God through the scriptures in prayer and the gathering of God's people together. That's what they did on the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week. That's what he did. The Bible points out that as his custom was. He's not on the Sabbath. He's not in some other place, but he is in the synagogue as God's people gathered. Now, the synagogue, synagogues originated, of course, during the time of Israel's captivity in Babylon for two primary reasons. The Israelitish people, they were in a foreign land. They desired to worship their God, remember their God, rehearse the scriptures as they knew them with each other, and so they would find a meeting place, and that eventually became known as a synagogue. And across the land, there would be synagogues scattered um, across the years. There was no temple standing. You will remember, while in exile, King Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed their temple. Of course, they're displaced. They're not in their homeland anyhow. And so they desire to meet on the Sabbath together and to worship and remember their God. So these displaced Jews, what they did was they started meeting. And eventually, as we just said, these meeting places became known as synagogues. The word synagogue itself simply means a meeting place. And the implication of it is to bring together. And what um, the synagogue meant to the Jew, what the church house means to you and me. We gather here. This is, we often say it's our church. Uh, Really, the church is the body of Christ, but this is the meeting house. This is the church house. Old timers used to talk about going to the church house. Are you going to show up for work day down at the church house? And uh, that sort of a thing. The same idea with the synagogue. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25 reminds us as we meet, the Bible says, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and uh, to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day uh, approaching. Jesus could have done what others in his day did. That is all for excuse for not getting to the church house. I can remember some Wednesdays, I'd, I'd work, I'd go in early at action. I'd go in an hour early. Bobby Sappington was over the receiving department. And he'd let a lot of us come in and help his department unload cover trucks for an hour. Then we'd go do our regular job. Some of us would, and we'd go back for another hour of overtime. It looked good on the paycheck. And sometimes I'd slide into that little white frame house in Buckhannon just enough time to barely get ready. Of course, we lived right close to the church, but I'd be there. I might slide in at 7 o'clock, or like some of you, 7.10, saying amen right there. But I'd get there. 
And we'd be dragging babies and diaper bags and everything. But we got there because that was a part of our lives. February the 9th of 1990, God saved my worthless soul. He put his grace in my heart. How do you put something that big and such a small heart? But God did that. And we made church our priority. Would we have been a Jew back in these days? The synagogue would have been the meeting place. And we would have done uh, what we did with the church. That's what the Jews did. That's what Jesus does. Uh, consider with me verses 16 through 21. Let's read them again. We'll probably read them again at a little bit different juncture. But uh, verses 16 through 21. Notice with me Christ in the synagogue at Nazareth. To read through them, then we'll work through them. Verse 16 through 21. The Bible says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. This is the synagogue that Jesus would have attended since he was just a small child. He knew everyone that made up that congregation. Everyone that made up the congregation knew Jesus. They knew who he belonged to. Uh, They knew what his occupation was. He had lived among them. He had labored among them. He had observed their lives. They had observed his life. He knew them by first name. They knew him by first name as well. He interacted with them for some 30 years. Again, he knows every one of them by name. Every one of them know him. He's the hometown. Some writers even called him, when you get to this juncture, this passage of Scripture, they would have looked upon him, the older people would have looked upon him as the preacher boy from Nazareth. He's our hometown preacher. We're hearing of the fame that's beginning to spread, of his preaching, of his wisdom, of his insight, of his discernment and the miracles that he has worked uh, in various places. They've begun to hear him, uh, hear about him. And this is their preacher boy, if you will, if you understand uh, what I'm saying here. A few years back, we were in the book of Nehemiah. Some of you may remember this. I've used this as an illustration uh, in different places. But we were in the book of Nehemiah. And we were talking about the influence of a church or churches or people upon our lives. And, and, and so I asked several that uh, would be in and out of different churches, such as I am. I started with Donald. And I asked him, I asked, I said, what would be the church that's had probably the greatest influence over your lifetime? Oh, never forget it. Sarepta Baptist Church. That's exactly what I expected you would say. Uh, Brother Chris Sure was another one that spoke up that Wednesday night. And he said, Victory Baptist Church in Batesville, Mississippi. And you know the church that influenced me the first couple of years and beyond after I was saved and trusted Christ. You see, this group of people would have influenced Jesus. His life would have influenced their lives. I'm talking about and just the week-to-week meeting, in the day-to-day in and outs of life itself. This synagogue was the one that Jesus, he's attended it now for uh, basically all of his life. 
his childhood years, his formative years, his adult years, every, uh, Saturday, uh, every Sabbath, every final day of the week, virtually, he's there week in and week out, year after year after year. This is his custom. As his custom was, he went into uh, the Sabbath. He was brought there by Joseph and by Mary. We believe Joseph has died by this point in his life. Uh, but Mary would have been there on this Sabbath. His half-brothers and half-sisters. He had at least six half-brothers, and we, we know he had at least two half-sisters. They would have been seated there. I mean, everybody that's supposed to be there is there on this particular occasion. Most cities had, had many synagogues. It wasn't just that there would be one synagogue. If there were ten Jewish men in a town or city, that would justify establishing a synagogue. And in a lot of towns and villages, if it was heavily populated at all, there would be multiple synagogues. Just like there's multiple churches in most of our cities across the southeast. I mean, somebody get mad, they just go start a church. Can I get a witness? And, uh, and I'm just picking right there. But uh, just as sure as Pontotoc County's got over 50 Baptist churches, friend, I'm telling you, most cities that you read about in the Bible... Uh, that the Jews, where they would populate the area, there would have been many times many synagogues that would have been there. Let me give you the general order of a service on the Sabbath in a synagogue. And I point this out because of the last phrase of verse number 16 of Luke 4. Look at this. Jesus, the Bible says, stood up for to read. In other words, he's going to be the preacher today. He's going to be the teacher today. He's the one going to deliver the message today. That was the practice. And, and when you read the scriptures, you stood up to read. When you taught, you sat down. As a matter of fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, before the Lord began his Beatitudes, he called his disciples unto him. And whenever they were coming to him, now we know by the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there's a multitude is gathered around him. But when his disciples, he called them unto him, and when he was set, the Bible says, that's the position of a teacher. That's the position of a rabbi. In these days. So he stands up. He wants the scroll. He wants the Bible. He wants the book. He has something that he wants to say to the people this day. But here's how uh, vaguely a service would go in the synagogue. There would be an opening with prayer and thanksgiving. And an asking of God's blessings upon their assembling for the day. We do that here. Churches all across the world do that. There would also then be a remembrance or rehearsing of formal, um, of uh, former decrees as a confession of faith. Look with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter number 6. You can find this scattered all throughout the Old Testament. There'd been, there'd have been a reading of something like this out of Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Find this, uh, if you will. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. You can find another place or two in the book of Deuteronomy. But perhaps they would open the synagogue with a public reading of something like this from the writings of Moses. Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house. And when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine, ha uh, upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontless, frontless between thine eyes, 
and thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gate. See, as they would come together, they would remind one another of the responsibility they had one to another, that the parents had to the children, and vice versa. If we had a church covenant out here, we don't own one. And that was a man-made covenant. Old John Phillips said, you don't need one of those when you've got a Bible. He didn't even think you needed a set of bylaws or anything. He said, you got a Bible. He said, why would you want something to add to the Bible when you've got the Word of God itself? He'd go on and say, you don't need a vision, you've got a Bible. You don't have to hear anything audibly, you've got a Bible. And I like that mentality. But most Baptist churches has got a, a big um, framed um, uh, copy of the Ten Commandments and a big framed copy of a church covenant. And that church covenant is based out of the Bible. And it reminds you of your responsibility as a church member and also your responsibility as a member of your family, uh, one to another. And so as they would gather in the synagogue, number one, they'd be reminded of their one Lord, their God, the God of heaven, the God that had provided for them and had spared them and taken care of them. Uh, The God of heaven, they would be reminded of him first. And then they would be reminded that we're to be uh, we're to be mindful of each other and encourage each other's faith. I just got through reading from Hebrews 10, verse number 24 and 25, which tells us to provoke one another to love and to good works and exhort one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. In other words, the closer we get to the return of Christ, we ought to be encouraging one another even more and more. After they'd be the public reading, they'd be prayer again. Oft times, we believe that there was probably as many as seven public readings in the synagogue of just Scripture. The early church picked up on that. There's recordings of where some of the early church fathers would simply take Scripture and they would read it with reverence. They would read it long before they ever got to the public assembly and they would read it clearly and they would read it reverently and then they'd go to prayer. And they would do that and, and perhaps sometimes they would repeat themselves. After they'd go to prayer again, and this would be followed by another reading of Scripture, and somebody would preach. Somebody would deliver a message. Somebody would give an exposition of what they had just read. And on this particular Sabbath that we're reading about here, Jesus stands as if to say to the minister of the synagogue, I'm the preacher today. I have something God has given me. And so they bring to him the scroll from Isaiah. And I'm going to read the first two verses of Isaiah 61. You can turn there if you want to. You don't have to. And then we're going to read Luke's account of what he read. Because Jesus didn't read all of Luke 61 verses 1 and 2. He read the bulk of it. But there's a phrase he purposefully left out. Listen to Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 as I read these verses in your hearing from the Old Testament. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach uh, good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, there's where Christ stopped. But the verse goes on to say, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. Now, he didn't read all of the text. He didn't read all of verse number 2. So Jesus stands for the reading. He sits now for his teaching or for his message. Now, he did read about the acceptable year of the Lord from Isaiah's hand, but he did not read the portion about the day of vengeance of our God. The first phrase had to do with Christ's first advent. The second phrase has to do with Christ's second advent. 
The first phrase had to do with his first coming, the purpose of as to why he was even standing in the synagogue that day. And the second phrase, the one that he omitted, uh, had to do with his second coming. His sermon, look at verse number 22. His sermon was filled, the Bible says, with gracious words. Look at verse number 22. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Now think about that. God had one son, the only begotten son of God, Jesus himself, and he was a preacher. We often wonder now, what's the best approach to preaching? As long as we all arrive at truth, I don't pick any. I don't pick any fights with If we'll arrive at truth, I'm good with your attempt at it and my attempt at it. But I'm going to tell you, the preacher of all preachers was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. God had one son, and not only is he our sacrifice, but he is a preacher. I've seen occasions through the years. I've sat with men struggling with the call to preach. I'm thinking about many years ago, many, many years ago. Uh, it was in a it was in a Bible conference, and uh, I was the pastor of the church. Church never had had one. It was 1994. This man had talked to me on several occasions about the call to preach upon his life. He believed it. His wife resisted it. We went to there were there were two rooms in the foyer. We went leaving the sanctuary to the one on the left. As a matter of fact, we took the deacons with us back there. I'm telling you, he trembling and weeping. He just knew God was calling him to preach. And she said, you'll do it by yourself. You're not going to do it and me support you. I didn't marry a preacher. As a matter of fact, one of the best friends I've got in the ministry many years ago, when he left at Pontotoc County, he was a farmer. When he left to go pastor in a, in a county away from here, a couple of counties away from here, she didn't go with him. As a matter of fact, the church was very patient with him and her both. She made the same statement. She said, I didn't marry a preacher. I'm telling you, God had a son. And his son was a preacher of the word of God. If God should put his hand on a young man in this church, we should feel very blessed. And should be very thankful. This couple sitting right here to my left and your right on the front row, they have two of their three sons in the ministry. How humbling that must be when they gather together and eat a meal for this mom and this dad to think God put his hand on these two boys. God has touched their lives and sends them into areas to preach the glorious gospel of our blessed God. The greatest business in the world is the business of serving God. Christ is in the synagogue at Nazareth. He stands to read. He sits down. He's fixing to teach or he has something to say. Notice with me, secondly, in verses 22 through 30. We'll work our way through the verses here in just a moment. But don't you notice Christ's rejection, or the Nazarenes, their rejection of Christ uh, as he is here in, in uh, uh, in the synagogue with them. It's amazing how two people can sit in the same service, hear the same singing, hear the same sermon, and have two totally different reactions, isn't it? Isn't it amazing how that happens? I remember Brother Doug Bearden telling so long ago, and I've told this, it's maybe been two or three years since, but I remember him preaching one Sunday morning. He said there at Central Baptist Church where he's been so long, and he said there was a woman on his right and said she grimaced all the way through the sermon and said there was a woman on his left said she wept uh, almost uncontrollably at times all the way through the sermon. He said both of them sat and listened to the same sermon with the rest of the church. He said the woman on the right, when they dismissed, he went to the door. She told him uh, she wasn't coming back and why she wasn't coming back. And he said goodbye and just let her walk. 
But he said the other lady said she waited until everybody else had left uh, except for Brother Doug and uh, his uh, dear wife who's now in heaven, Miss, Miss Gail. And said when she got to us, said, said she reached into her pocketbook and took a handgun trembling and said, Brother Doug, I want you to take this gun and I want you to call my daughter. I have considered uh, taking my life, but I wanted to come to church one more time. And after hearing the word of God, And being reminded that my hope is in Christ, not in my circumstances, she said, I know I need help. And said, just the preaching of the word of God has let me know, I need help today. Call my daughter and tell her to come get me. I want to tell you, two people can sit in the same service and leave in totally different uh, mindset. Say amen right there. You've seen it and I've seen it too uh, down through the years. Instead of raving over his gracious words, they're going to reject him is what they're going to do. They're going to turn their back on him. As a matter of fact, they're going to take him out of the synagogue, going to take him to that bluff, at that cliff, and, and their intention is to kill him. And they want to push him off the cliff. Now, I can see it in my mind. I remember when we were taken there and we got off the tour bus and walked out and we were read this particular passage. And I'm telling you, if anybody fell off that, uh, that it would have to spell death for sure. Notice the scorning of Christ by the Nazarenes, verses 22 and 23. The Bible says, and all bear him witness. This is he's read. And, um, and uh, he has spoken unto them. Verse 22 says, and all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. If that stopped right there, that had been wonderful. But then the Bible says... And they said, is this, is not this Joseph's son? And then in verse number 23, and he said unto them, you will surely say unto me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever you have heard done in Capernaum, do also. We have heard done in Capernaum, uh, do also here in thy country. Bottom line, the Nazarenes didn't believe him. He was too common. He was too ordinary. He's from the wrong side of the tracks, just like they are. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? They reject him as the Messiah. To them, all he is is the son of Joseph or the son of Mary or a carpenter's son or a common carpenter himself. They'd watched him grow up. They'd become not just familiar with him. They're overly familiar with him. I thought about Isaiah 53, the first three verses of Isaiah 53. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he grew up, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as of a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. Um, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him, that is, we regarded him not. He was a man, a common man that walked among common men. There was nothing about him that stood out uh, to the average uh, man. The Nazarenes belittled him. They rejected him. They asked him, verse 22, it's not this Joseph's uh, son. There's nothing remarkable about him. He's like our sons. What, uh, What right does he have to claim to be the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah? And then you notice that Christ then denounces He denounces the Nazarenes in verse number 24. Notice where the Bible says, And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. And that is true. We preachers talk about this across those that I know scattered about the southeast. We talk about this all the time. It's the preacher from out of town that knows more than the rest of us. 
or the preacher that's been in glory for some 35 or 40 years. Nobody else seems to know anything. As a matter of fact, last week in the healing of the nobleman's son, Jesus said something along this lines, didn't he? He said in John 4 and verse 44, for Jesus himself testified and said, testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. And then I read from the two accounts where he'll be rejected by the Nazarenes later in his ministry, from Matthew 13 and from Mark at chapter number 6. And he reminds us in both passages that a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country. Did you know even to our day, a prophet is not usually well-received in his own home territory? Even Christ's half-brothers, which we know he had six, and his half-sisters, we know he had at least two of those. They didn't believe who he claimed to be. They did not believe the claims of Christ. He was not only rejected by family, but also this community of Nazareth. And he was rejected by the Jews, by and large, still is rejected by the Jews to this day, generally speaking. John 1, 11 says he came into his own, and his own received him not. If you know anything about where the Jews are today, they've been judicially blinded. What they said was crucify him. Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. They had no idea what they were saying. You can go to the Holocaust Museum in, uh, in uh, Jerusalem. You can go to the Holocaust Museum in Israel. And you'll walk across a certain area as large, I guess, as, as the, the front of this church is. And maybe about to the second or third pew right across. You'll walk across glass that won't break through with you. And what you're walking across is leather shoes and shoes that survived the, the burning of Jewish people during the Jewish Holocaust. They had no idea what they said when they said, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. I've been to the Holocaust Museum in Houston, Texas on two different occasions. They've got pictures scattered in the hallways of where they took men and women and, and even children. They held those guns to their head. There was going to be a mass homicide and pushed into a mass grave. I've not been to the one in Washington, D.C., but I understand you've got similar artifacts up there. They had no idea what they were saying when they said, let his blood be upon us and our babies. They had no idea what they were saying. And you have no idea what you're doing if you reject Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have no idea what you're doing. I know what the liberal progressive mentality today is. Well, God won't send anybody to hell. I beg your pardon. I beg your pardon. That book tells you he'll send you to hell. Here's what we say. Man, don't. God don't send a man to hell. Man sends himself to hell. I beg your pardon. When God destroyed a society, reprobated an entire society except for one family, eight of them survived the flood. They went to hell in their coattails. What else is he going to do? He's lied if he doesn't. Send a man to hell for, not, uh, for rejecting Christ? We don't like a message of judgment. We, want our, we don't want the weather interrupting our cable. We don't, want, uh, we don't want our food overdone. We don't want to wait too long in the fast food line. We are so sickening spoiled in the United States of America. We think God owes us. God doesn't owe us a thing. 
Hell is waiting on the man, woman, boy, girl who rejects Christ. The greatest insult to the Trinity is to reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You say, preacher, I don't believe it. doesn't change it. It doesn't change a thing. Back on target. And I'll, I'll finish here in a little bit. You all are always patient with me on Sundays and Wednesdays. Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and among his own people. I had not been here at Charity very long. Fixing to be 11 years. Can you, can you imagine? I don't look a day over 25, I'm sure. But Adam, thing be 11 years. And uh, I do look a day over 25. I look a lot of years over 25, and I feel it too. Um, I told Jeff Shettles in the prayer room, it's been a few months back, I said, it's getting old, ain't for sissies, is it, Brother Jeff? And he said, ain't for sissies, Brother Kevin. But I remember saying, I remember making the statement about preaching and a prophet uh, being without honor in his own country. And I made the statement, sometimes a preacher, the hardest place for him to preach is his own home church. And Joe Tudor, how many of y'all remember Brother Joe? Such a kind soul. I didn't know there was a prayer meeting in the back before Sunday morning service began. Brother Joe, in his kind way, he came and met me out front. I was shaking hands, and he said, Brother Kevin, you, you probably don't even know. I just want you to know we, we have a men's prayer, prayer meeting before service begins back. I said, I didn't know. But I remember making that statement, quoting the verse, something to that effect. And he came up to me, and he said, Preacher, he said, I think I have watched a preacher be mistreated. We thought he was supposed to go everywhere else and preach with liberty and come back here and preach with the same liberty. I said, don't work like that. It don't even work that way with a, with a pastor. Do you know that? I could spend the rest of the day talking to you about it. And he said, Brother Kevin, I think I owe a preacher an apology. And I don't think he was guilty of what he was even talking about. Now I want to say something. Now, I know I've got to hasten. I know I am. We've been blessed around here, having preachers in and out of our church, preachers that join our church when they're between churches, being able to sit and catch their breath and get their feet under them again. I know some men that need a place like that to go scattered about in different places today, and they don't have a church like that. They feel like they can go and not be judged, just sit down with their family and try to get everything back together. May we never take that for granted. May we never take for granted when a missionary shows up unannounced. They do that because they feel like they're loved and welcomed and received warmly here. As a matter of fact, I've said this in front of our deacons. If a missionary or a preacher comes as a part of our church, I want them to leave this place warm and full. I could say a lot about that. How do you know a preacher, by the way? How do you know if he's real? There's a lot of phonies. I know that. Number one, has he got God about him? Do other men that are respected in ministry, do they have respect for that brother? Do other congregations have a regard for him? Does the Holy Spirit bear witness with what he's preaching? Is what he's preaching, is it anchored in Scripture? Then support him. Some preachers preach like they've got a third-grade education and some like they've been in uh, New Orleans Seminary for 35 years. 
But a preacher is uniquely gifted and given by the Lord. He denounces them. He denounces them with two Old Testament prophets. We won't take the time. 25 and 26. Verses 25 and 26. He talks about Elijah and the widow from Zarephath. She's a uh, Gentile. It offended them. God bypassed all the Jewish widows and met her need. Sent Elijah from the brook to her house and met her needs. It offended them. And then Elisha, in Elisha's day, there was a there were a number of Jewish lepers. He skipped all them and went over there and did a work in Naaman's life when he dipped seven times in the muddy Jordan. And notice with me, and I'll close with this, verses 28 through 30. Let's just read the verses through. And what you're going to find is the intent of the Nazarenes to kill Christ, 28 through 30. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard those things, were filled with wrath rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill whereon their city was built. The Bible says that they might cast him down headlong. Then verse number 30 is a miracle in itself, isn't it? I believe he does this as simply an act of his inherent authority. They get him to the brow and he turns and walks through the middle of them. Walks right through the middle of them. They didn't throw him off the cliff. His hour was not yet. Verse 30 says, but he passing through the midst of them went his way. In verse number 31, I'll tell you where he's going to reside now. He's headed to Capernaum. That'll be home base from here on. They rejected Christ. Rejection, rejection of Christ is a serious matter. I've been up uh, since early. And... Uh, I pulled back up in some of my old notes the testimony of Adoram Judson. He's believed to be the greatest missionary to Burma, to the Burmese people. When he went to Burma, there was not hardly, uh, well, there was no gospel witness. He was the only gospel witness, was rejected for some time. And now there are great works that are left there that's attributed to Adoram Judson. Judson was raised by Christian parents, by a daddy and a mama that, prayed with him in the home and took him uh, to the assembly every time the doors were opened and he was raised to understand what the principles of Christ were. He went off to Providence College and before leaving, his mom and dad prayed with him and urged him to keep his eyes on Christ. Um, after getting there, there was a fellow that challenged his faith that became a, great, uh, a, a close friend of Adoram Judson's. They'd both been students at Providence College. His name was Jacob Ames. Ames was an atheist. He began to try to poke holes in the faith of um, what Judson had been taught. Not long after being there, he embraced atheism. Adoram Judson embraced atheism, renounced the faith of his parents, broke his mom and daddy's heart. After a semester or two of being there, they were leaving one semester on horseback. They were going to different places, all of the students. And Judson decided he would take his horse and what few belongings he could tie to the saddle and take with him. He was going to travel a bit. After traveling one day, late in the evening, he happed up on an inn and went in and asked to rent a room for the evening. The innkeeper told Adoram Judson, there's a room left, but I tell you, there's a man that's dying in the room next to it, adjoining it, 
we feel he's dying. He's severely ill. Judson, weary from his journey, paid the fee. Spent a sleepless night listening on the other wall of a man in intense pain, writhing in agony. On over before the sun come up, the room got silent. Judson got up, ready to leave, went by to speak with the innkeeper. And he said, the man in the room next door said, what happened to him? It got quiet as morning began to approach. The innkeeper said, said, well, the young man died not, not too long ago. And he said his name. He said, do you happen to know his name? And she said, Ames, Jacob Ames. He said, he's a, he's a college student from Providence College. All that preaching, all that teaching, all that living, that little modest mom and daddy had instilled in Adirond Judson flooded his soul and his mind. Trembling, he finally got a hold to himself, saddled his horse, and instead of traveling the countryside, he made his way back home to a little mama and daddy and thanked them for the raising. Was soon saved after that, yielded his life to the gospel ministry. Now he's in church history. He's one of the greatest missionaries the church has ever known. It's a serious thing to reject Christ, you know. It's a serious thing. Wouldn't it be awful to leave this world today and spend it in a Christless hell when you don't have to do that? I think one of the greatest tortures of hell is regret. Abraham said to the rich man in Luke 16, he said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. He said, Think about it, son. Think about where you come from. You had the same opportunity he had. It's a dangerous thing to reject Jesus Christ. Would you stand, please?